Hello and welcome to Progressive News Network. I am your host, Brooke Hines. It is Monday, August 24, 2020. And we got a lot of stuff for you in this episode of PNN. We have a conversation with Rick Spizak live, just with us tonight, all to ourselves. We've got Cardit Krishnayer on coronavirus and COVID-19. And we have Janine Maloff on the moral revolution of the Reverend William Barber. Great show. Stick around. If you want to pull the party, the major party that is closest to the way you're thinking, to what you're thinking, you must, you must show them that you're capable of not voting for them. Because the the way the Democratic Party has run now for quite a number of presidential cycles is they pick a nominee in a kind of half-assed process that doesn't really represent much of anybody. And then they tell everybody to just shut up. Don't bring up anything that will complicate life for your nominee. You know he's not for you on this. Why badger him? He's not going to be for you for reasons that you don't understand but are good reasons. Shut up. Turn off your brains. If you don't show them you're capable of not voting for them, they don't have to listen to you. I promise you that. I worked within the Democratic Party. I didn't listen or have to listen to anything on the left in while I was working in the Democratic Party because the left had nowhere to go. And so truer words have not been spoken. That is Lawrence O'Donnell and William Greeter explaining how corporate Democrats think. And this is really important to our show tonight. Because first thing, I want to share this great article with you that dropped just last night. This is David Sirota with Corporate Dems Want You to Shut Up While They Get Loud. Uh, subhead progressives are told to keep quiet until after the election. Meanwhile, corporate Dems are blasting out divisive ideological messages that could demoralize Democratic voters and depress turnout. So what's going on here? It seems that Rahm Emanuel, remember Rahm Emanuel? Back at the beginning of 2010, Rahm Emanuel was the uh, chief of staff of the Obama White House. And, you know, at the time, there was a lot of controversy about uh, whether or not or why not Obama was using his immense email list to motivate his supporters to support progressive policy in Congress. And Rahm Emanuel shoots back that progressives are fucking retarded. Those were his words. That is what he said. He said they were fucking retarded and that the White House owed progressives absolutely nothing. Nada. Stop asking. Quit bugging us. That was the message. 
Well, there's, there's two issues here. There's obviously his language, which is unacceptable. But what, what it's also unacceptable, really, is that the White House thinks that it should be and can give orders to outside progressive groups about whether those progressive groups should be pressuring members of Congress. The fact that many progressive groups have taken those orders is a huge, huge problem. The way to pass real progressive legislation in this country is for progressive groups to be pushing the White House, not to be taking orders from a hack like Rahm Emanuel at the White House. I, I, and so that was David Sirota on the Dylan Radigan show in February of 2010, pushing back on Rahm Emanuel way back then on his attack on progressives. So there is a history here of uh, one side, the Rahm Emanuel side, going after progressives and a history of progressives going, hey, no, listen, you can't do that. So it's in this context that David Sirota puts out this piece the other day or yesterday. He says, no doubt you have been told to keep quiet. Just put on your big boy pants, they say, and find the impulse control to at least muzzle yourself for the next 72 days until the election happens. After that, fine. Then and only then will you may be permitted to speak your mind and politely ask the Democratic Party to match its rhetoric with policy agenda. But until then, you were told to shut the hell up and grow up, as former Obama and Mike Bloomberg pollster Cornell Belcher put it during an emblematic MSNBC segment berating progressives. What do you say to critics of Joe Biden, including potential Obama coalition Democratic voters, who have said, you know what, it's much harder to put together a reel like that for Joe Biden, who's actually had a longer career in politics, that there isn't the same enthusiasm, some say, uh, that when you look at other measures like online searches, people aren't searching to hear what Joe Biden's saying right now. Um, fair or not, what do you say to that? Shut the hell up and grow up, right? We've got <laughs> a guy who is an existential threat. So there you have it. And, and uh, you know, uh, Ari Melber thinks that that's like super funny. Shut the hell up and grow the hell up. Um, this kind of hectoring has become a defining part of the political party's culture. Uh, the clip I played earlier with journalist Bill Greeter uh, lamenting this in conversation with Lawrence O'Donnell. That is a good example of this. The Quote, there is the way the Democratic Party is run for quite a number of pre presidential cycles is they pick a nominee in a kind of half-assed process that doesn't really represent much of anybody. And then they tell everybody to just shut up. Don't bring up anything that will complicate life for your nominee. Shut up and turn off your brains. And there's a superficial logic to this call for omerta. After all, Donald Trump is destroying everything and he must be defeated. But here's the problem. The demand to shut up is only being aimed at the progressive base of the party, while the corporate wing floods the zone with rhetoric that could and will demobilize voters. And the truth here is that while corporate Democrats the establishment Democrats, the Democrats who make all of their money from Wall Street uh, and so on and so forth. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute. They might depict themselves as uh, evincing a non-ideological just-win-baby attitude, but they are most decidedly pushing a very clear corporate ideology. 
And they are doing so in dangerously divisive ways that could depress the big turnout that's desperately needed to defeat Trump. And so we just saw at the Democratic National Convention the showcasing of John Kasich and Colin Powell and uh, Susan Molinari. Uh, They're going out of their way to show the Wall Street class, you know, the, the moneyed class, that they are pushing progressives to the side. And Rahm Emanuel has been going out on the media saying, hey, look, there's no green, new Green Deal. There's no Medicare for all. We're safe. You know, we're we're all we're who you want to vote for. But what he doesn't say is that right now, Rahm Emanuel, where he gets his paycheck from is from Wall Street. He is in mergers and acquisitions now, which is uh, exactly the you know, that that's the type of person who is depicted in the movie American Psycho. You'll remember that Patrick Bateman, uh, played by Christian Bale, his whole uh, character was built around uh, being this high-powered, transactional figure in mergers and acquisitions before anybody really actually knew what the hell was, was going on with that. We know better now. That is exactly what Rahm Emanuel is doing now after he totally screwed up Uh, uh, being mayor of Chicago by privatizing their parking system and uh, pushing teachers out of the the way to uh, privatize schools and also cover up for uh, crooked cops who uh, were shooting people in the back. So that's who Rahm Emanuel is. Who is Rahm Emanuel from the past? Well, as Obama's chief of staff, Emanuel helped kill the idea of a public health option. And now he works for a Wall Street firm that advises big health care and fossil fuel companies on mergers, acquisitions and bankruptcy restructuring. Earlier this year, Emanuel was set to be part of the featured entertainment of an oil lobbying group's annual meeting during a $125 per plate luncheon with GOP strategist, wait for it, Carl Rove. That event was canceled because of coronavirus, but, you know, it's not like he canceled his appearance because uh, he didn't want to be seen with Carl Rove as if that would have any kind of bearing on whether or not Democrats would want to listen to anything that he has to say. Not Biden Democrats, apparently. That is the message that is coming out of this Democratic National Convention that we just saw. Now, To be clear, this isn't just about Rahm Emanuel. Uh, As progressives are being told to keep quiet, Democratic Party officials engineered a convention light on policy proposals, but one that gave primetime convention speaking spots to anti-choice, anti-climate, anti-union former Republican Governor John Kasich of Ohio and to Colin Powell. Powell, who lied America into a war that killed hundreds of thousands of people. In an interview on CNBC, Emanuel said, quote, this will be the year of the Biden Republican. And he noted that promoting these figures was designed to help Biden deliberately send an anti-progressive message to voters because, quote, John Kasich and Colin Powell don't exactly endorse or support big P progressive policies. 
Well, neither does Rahm Emanuel, and neither does Larry Summers and so many other people on the uh, Biden team right now. Uh, the one thing that you see missing from the Biden team are people who speak for the people who are hurting right now, the folks who are out of work, who are facing a a economic situation that could make the Great Depression look like a little bump in the road. We are looking at 50,000 people being evicted or losing their homes. We are looking at even more uh, medical bankruptcies because of COVID. And we're looking at more death because of people who can't access health care, who actually have COVID, who can't work from home, whose jobs are quote unquote essential, but they don't get uh, uh, health care benefits. They don't get time off. They have to show up to work and deal with psychos who don't want to wear masks. And, you know, the, the, the public who must always be right. You know, these people who are making minimum wage are expected to bear the brunt, the entire brunt of the coronavirus uh, uh, economic meltdown right now at this point. And you don't see the Biden campaign going out there and talking about the things that people need, that we need health care, that we need to be able to see a doctor, that we need to have tests, that we need to have economic security in order to, you know, be able to live and not be thrown out on the streets and, and join the ranks of the homeless. We need help. And they are making it their uh, uh campaign position to be refusing any kind of help to regular Americans. As progressives are told to muzzle themselves, corporate Democrats went scorched earth and spent $15 million to intervene in primaries to stymie progressive Democratic candidates and tilt intra-party contest to business-friendly candidates. Meanwhile, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi works to unseat Democratic Senator Ed Markey, one of the Senate's few progressive lawmakers, and to crush a spirited primary challenge to Representative Richard Neal, who has used his committee chairmanship to block even modest health care reforms. Sirota writes, clearly, this is a coordinated campaign by the right wing of the Democratic Party to prioritize its policy goals above everything else, even motivating core Democratic voters to turn out in record numbers during the general election. And so for leadership right now, we are all looking to figures such as uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who last week pushed back against corporate Democrats' attempt to resurrect a Republican-style austerity politics. Rather than just sitting there and staying silent, she declared that if the party wants to win in November, it must take, quote, massive investment in our country or else it will fall apart. This is not a joke, she said. To a top to adopt GOP deficit hawking now when millions of lives are at stake is utterly irresponsible. Hold the line, win, lead. Now, this is among complaints, you know, 
AOC puts this out there, while the conservative wing of the Democratic Party is out there complaining about how the pantry is bare, that, uh, that Trump has already given away all of the Treasury to corporate interests and to wealthy people. So all of these these little, you know, unicorns that, that, that people want, like health care and, and, and economic security, well, too bad, so sad. The pantry's bare. We've already given away all the money. Sorota points out how uh, brilliant AOC's strategy is here, uh, he says, because it does two things. It uh, stands up for real change, and it reassures Democratic voters that there are at least some people who are serious about going to Washington and fighting for what the party purports to believe in. What AOC and progressive squad members are trying to do is to fortify the progressive agenda and help energize Democratic voters to turn out because it casts the election not as a meaningless charade that won't matter after November because everyone will sell out anyway. It instead depicts the election as an event with high stakes beyond Trump, a turning point that can create new policies that will actually matter in people's lived experience. Progressives and base Democrats would be wise right now to be worried about this strategy that the Biden campaign is uh, um embarking on. This is how uh, Dukakis lost in 98. Uh, you, you do not go out there and tell voters that nothing will fundamentally change. You don't blast out a story about how the Democratic presidential nom- nominee told his Wall Street donors that he isn't proposing any new legislation to change corporate behavior. And you don't turn the party's convention into a pageant for Republican icons. You don't have the disgraced mayor-turned-Wall Street guy advise your presidential candidate or have him go on Corporate America's favorite television show on CNBC during a health care emergency and climate crisis to effectively laugh at progressives who are pushing Medicare for All and a Green New Deal. Instead, what you want is you want your party to tell the voters how the election will materially improve our lives. We have in, in, immense needs right now, and people are hurting, and, and this is just the start of the hurt. And so we need to see our candidates and our party go out there and support us. So Sirota says, In light of that, progressives shouldn't unilaterally disarm and stay silent when corporate Democrats are getting bolder and more brazen about this election period to push their depressing, better things aren't possible policy agenda. The real way to help boost turnout and energize voters is for progressives to push back against the corporate propaganda and make clear that whether the establishment likes it or not, this election can and will offer the opportunity to achieve something even bigger than just getting rid of Trump. In other words, being anti-Trump isn't enough. And as I've said before, if the votes that our Biden votes are being cast just because he isn't Trump, then that support is a mile wide and an inch deep. 
That is what got Dukakis into trouble. That is what got Charlie Crist into trouble in Florida when he was running for governor the second time. And that is what got uh, Hillary Clinton in trouble in 2016. So we are seeing the same exact mistakes being made again. And we have to start asking ourselves, why is this happening? And yet that doesn't seem to be what the Democratic Party is gearing up to do. Kevin Gostola writes on his Medium account that the Democratic Party plans to defeat Trump without the progressive left. Uh, He says the Democratic Party and Joe Biden's presidential campaign have a plan to beat President Trump that does not rely on winning progressive and left-wing votes. During the 2020 National Convention... For the Democrats, the strategy was on full display. Disgruntled Republicans were welcomed with open arms, including individuals who have fought against 99% of Americans throughout their careers. The day Biden delivered his speech accepting the party's nomination, 90 Republican military and intelligence officials declared their support for Biden over Trump. The reason why these people are coming forward and, sh- and giving all of this support is because it, you know, Biden has been talking to these guys behind closed doors for months, and he's offering them stuff. He's not offering us anything. Meanwhile, fresh voices with popularity among the base of the party, like AOC, were granted only 90 seconds of speaking time. This is insane. This is absolutely insane. Um, We're fixing to have another situation that reminds everyone a lot of what, how we've lost in the past. And for progressives, it is our job to try and uh, push everything a little bit more towards the people so that maybe these guys have a chance to win. But I know that with the progressives that I talk to, a lot of people are asking, you know, why why would we even do that? And so a lot of people are focused on down-ballot races, uh, which is the one thing that everyone can agree on is something worth doing right now. So familiarize yourself with people who are running for mayor, familiarize yourself with people who are running for your county commission, and decide for yourself what you're going to do at the top of the ballot with regards to the presidential race. And right now we have Cardit Krishnayer joining us to talk about all things COVID related. Hey, Cardic, what's up? Hi, how are you? I am pretty good. We've had some technical difficulties with the live show, so I am recording and then I'm going to upload. Good to be with you. And it's, uh, uh, it's an interesting time, obviously, in the state of Florida regarding COVID and everything else going on. Well, let's start out with COVID because uh, I I know that you're uh, you're my go-to person for all things COVID, Florida. So where do things stand right now? I mean, in theory, at least on paper, things seem like they 
term for the better, right? We're in a position where we have uh, been able to uh, curtail the, the growth in numbers. We see case numbers coming down. We see debts now coming to, uh, beginning to come down, which uh, uh, we, we curtailed case numbers for a couple of weeks now. Now we're down to, on average, three, four, maybe 5,000 new cases on a bad day, three, four, 5,000 a day, which is way down from the, the 12 to 15,000 uh, we had at the peak. Now, in terms of debt, we um, pretty high debt tolls in the state of Florida up until the middle of this past week. Now it's suddenly come down the last few days um, into the 100. Today it was only 51, but it was a Sunday. That was that, um, a typical number for a Sunday. Recently has been, uh, I have the number 77 in my, in my head for some reason, but generally around 80 or 85. So it's lower. Uh, I would expect to tomorrow. Uh, sorry, that was today's number, so that was for a Saturday. Uh, tomorrow's number that comes out Monday morning, uh, which would be a Sunday number to be similar. Let's see Tuesday, Wednesday, where we are. If we're down uh, below about 120 a day, then we've seen real progress. When we were having nine, ten thousand cases in the state, eight, nine, ten thousand cases towards the end of June, beginning of July, we were getting 50 yesterday. And so that was when people were making the argument, oh, no one's dying. Then suddenly, you know, if the cases are coming down, you're having 250 deaths a day because that's what happens. There's a lag. So let's see if, if that continues to happen. Now, it's important not to get carried away with this because we've got three things coming. We've got schools that have just reopened uh, in-person learning in 64 of the 67 counties, the three South Florida counties that never moved on from phase one, Palm Beach, Broward, Miami, Dave, remain. Uh, close. My niece, who lives with me, she uh, she's in virtual school. So I well, she's in public school, but she's in virtual school, right? Until the schools reopen in Broward, we live in Broward County. Uh, but in 64 of the 67 county schools have reopened. Florida High School Athletic Association has chosen to go ahead with high school sports in the fall. Which uh, high school football? We know a lot of small towns revolve around high school football, and uh, high school activities in general are a big deal in this state. So. Uh, that is another challenge, and, and obviously we know college football is beginning. The ACC and the SEC have chosen to uh, uh, continue on with their, their college football season, even though uh, University of North Carolina and Notre Dame, two schools in the ACC, have shut their campuses down because of COVID. Uh, and uh, so uh, as of now, the, 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 uh, the college football conferences, which the uh, major college programs from the state of Florida play in, are playing, I, I will admit very openly, and I apologize to listeners out there, uh, UCF and USF I know play in the American Conference, which is a smaller conference or a lesser conference. I don't know what that conference is doing. I, I Maybe they're playing, maybe they're not. I assume they're playing. Um, the SEC and ACC, which of course have Florida, Florida State, Miami, uh, the uh, three traditionally big programs in the state, they are playing college football. And then the third thing would be Labor Day weekend coming. And we know what... Um, Memorial Day did to this state. And we know what 4th of July then did. So um, I think if Labor Day goes like Memorial Day did, the cases are going are gonna to rise. And then when you talk about college football, high school football, uh, college, you know, the, um, schools reopening, public schools reopening in 64, 67 counties, you might have this thing spike back up. Uh, it, the numbers are very convenient this week that they come down because of the um, 
the high school because of schools reopening, uh, because of the Republican National Convention, uh, which will feature a number of speakers from the state of Florida. And, uh, and, and it seems very convenient that the numbers have come down right at the right time to allow those things to go forward. Uh, I will say also, though, uh, while the state is reporting the positive percentage at around 5 or 6%, and we're told it has to be under 5% to be safe, so they're right at that threshold. By the way, they calculated, I want to reinforce that independent agencies, independent entities are calculating Florida's numbers differently than Florida. And according to John Hopkins, who I have to trust, and I think we, we should trust, Florida is still over 10% positive. So uh, why I think the report today saying 5.65%, and makes us look like we're very close to being in that safe level under 5%. According to the independent agency that would evaluate this stuff objectively without a political agenda, we're not anywhere close to there. Now, we come down in the state's own uh, numbers, we come down from 15 to 5.6. In the Johns Hopkins numbers, we have come down from about 22% to 10%. So we definitely made progress, but we're not there yet. And uh, I had some uh, real interesting little factoids that I ran across this week. Let me pull these up. One was that COVID prefers uh, drier air, less humidity, and a little bit cooler temperatures. That's good news for Florida, at least, going forward. But it's bad news for everyone else going into autumn and and uh, um, winter, you know, because that's low humidity and cooler temperatures for just about the rest of the rest of the United States, except for a few places, maybe coastal Gulf states. I, I, I would actually also say that maybe we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but the dry air thing is interesting because I would I have already put out there, I think, on Twitter that I believe dry air, uh, the presence of dry air in Saharan dust have saved. Florida from direct hits from hurricanes this year. As we see hurricanes uh, skedaddle past Florida one after another this season. Uh, now, again, it's only August 20, uh, 23rd. Tomorrow is the anniversary uh, of the uh, Hurricane Andrew hitting South Florida in 1992 and the anniversary of Hurricane Katrina hitting South Florida in, uh, in 2005. So uh, we're getting to that peak of the hurricane season, and dry air has played a factor in either uh, – Protecting South Florida or, or weakening storms as they approach, uh, uh, well, actually the entire peninsula of Florida. This doesn't apply to the panhandle, but we can get into that in a minute. But the dry air thing is interesting. I think it's had a, a double impact on, in terms of uh, uh, COVID and uh, and storms. So the dry air has, has helped us with, with the storms. COVID sen- t- tends to like a little bit of drier air. Now, we all have drier air in the air conditioning you know that's part of what air conditioners do is pull out the moisture in the in the air in your apartment or your house or whatever uh so there was there was this interesting hypothesis that is starting to get a little bit more traction it's called the xyz hypothesis and it's x percent of the population has pre-existing human immunity not humidity uh, X percent has pre-existing immunity. Y percent is who are people who get exposed um, and then don't develop antibodies. And then Z percent uh, develop traditional uh, antibodies. And 
you put these together and this is how you get to herd immunity. So if 30%, just pulling a, a number out that's a, that's kind of in the neighborhood of what they think, if 30% of the population has pre-existing immunity and Y percent is exposed but doesn't develop antibodies, so these are probably like the, the mild cases, and Z percent developed the B cell antibodies. These are the people who um, are are have more severe cases. If that's around fifteen percent, so you got thirty at X, forty at Y, and fifteen at, at Z. All of that is supposed to add up to some form of herd immunity. Now that that'll hold this hypothesis. If this is right, we should see this in the autumn as more people are exposed and either develop the antibodies or don't develop the antibodies. And the people who are already have pre-existing immunity just kind of skate along. This will be disproven or we will have a counterexample to this if we get to, to the fall and the winter and the numbers keep going up. Because this hypothesis says, as we get towards fall and winter, these numbers should be going down. So in, in just an interesting little thing that people have been talking about over to the side. Um, maybe magical thinking, maybe wishful thinking in terms of s developing some kind of social immunity. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think it's all up in the air right now. We don't really know, which is the thing about science and reason which uh, I, I think a lot of uh, commentators, particularly on the right, have missed, that want to lock in anything that a scientist or a doctor said in February. Somehow uh, they have to be doctrinaire about it. And if they're saying something different in August, well, they said something and they, they act like it's politics, right? Oh, well, they said in February, it's like when someone puts, changes their position on, on an issue. That's the way they're treating it. No, it's because this is a new virus. Doctors and scientists looked at it in, in kind of the most reasonable way they could, right? Mm -hmm. and, um, and and applied what they knew about H1N1 strain, the SARS strain, et cetera, uh, to try to understand this virus as it began to spread. As they got more evidence, as we saw treatments, as we saw people get sick and die, but also some other people be treated and get better, you've changed your, your kind of approach. And this will continue to happen. This will continue to evolve. The herd immunity argument, I've also heard from scientists, from doctors, including a doctor that's a relative of mine who now is positive for COVID. It's what happens, unfortunately, when you work as a doctor mm. in a hospital and you get, uh, you know, he's in the Ocala area. Um, you end up, um, uh, you you end up wondering if actually you can develop herd immunity without a vaccine, because if you don't have a vaccine and you allow uh, all of these different things to take place, there may be a larger risk to society. So there's also some some wisdom in, in not um, exposing enough people to it and overloading the medical system potentially. Um, so uh, we'll see. I mean, in, in Florida's case, as I said, I mean, I think the dry air, uh, we had drier than usual this summer. 
was certainly much drier than, let's say, 2017, uh, for, for instance. Just want to look three years back. That allowed that game, uh, COVID, kind of a, a better run based on, on some of the science we're seeing. You're, you're right about that, Brooke. And, and in mm-hmm. fact, there was there had been a thought that heat and humidity would kill COVID. And then there just people said, well, in Florida, it hasn't been with Florida. The cases are skyrocketing through the summer. It obviously isn't heat and humidity. Well, it isn't heat. Okay, we know that. But humidity is it might be, but we had a lot of dry air hanging around this summer, drier air, Saharan dust, et cetera, than usual. And that, as I mentioned, has actually been a layer that has uh, kind of, uh, particularly from Issa East, uh, protected the, the, the peninsula of Florida. Well, I can explain that in a few minutes if, if you want me to. But yeah. um, that, that's, uh, that, that's certainly true now that as we get into the fall, I think the rest of the country would, in theory, be at bigger risk than Florida. But, um, look, I mean, this has been so mishandled. And I think that we have a situation now where uh, we have a governor who who has shot his credibility with various buffoonish statements, really kind of clownish statements. And we have a very politicized environment. Uh, So uh, I, I, I think that it's very possible that we will have a resurgence of the virus in the fall, in the state, for the factors I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. and really largely unacknowledged by the political leadership at the state. Uh, we'll, we'll see. Um, very few people who are in uh, positions of responsibility in the state want to really uh, uh, be accountable and stand up and, and take on this virus, which is the same thing in, uh, in, in, in the, uh, on the national level. And then I thought... Um, when uh, Vice President Biden the other day said that he would push a national mask mandate the first day he was president, I, you know, I'm again being naive. I thought it would be relatively non-controversial. And, well, that was like, that was like basically saying, I'm going to turn uh, the country over to, uh, to, to Stalin <laughs> or to Brezhnev. That, that, that was what the reaction was. Like. I mean, of all the things Biden talked about on in its acceptance speech, that seemed to be the takeaway for a lot of people, was that effectively uh, communism was coming to the United States with a national mask mandate. Now, maybe we can argue the constitutionality of a president signing the executive order to require mask wearing. Right? Maybe, maybe there is some constitutional legal uh, problem with it. But that's not what they were. That's not why they were angry, right? They were angry again because there seems to be an overriding desire by large numbers of people in this state and in this country, I'm speaking specifically of Floridians, how they reacted to Biden's comments. Um, this, this is no big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and we even saw a poll today from CBS that was a national poll. I saw it on Face the Nation this morning on Margaret Brennan's show that uh, 57% of Republicans, they, they're not concerned about the number of people who died from COVID in the U.S. Um I forgot how the, how the question was phrased, but it, it basically, uh, basically, fifty-seven uh, percent of Republicans thought that uh, uh, didn't think that there were too many people that had died, effectively of COVID. One hundred seventy-five percent. So, and we have a study this week that shows if we wear masks, that number will go from one seventy-five to two forty by the end of the year. Unfortunately, some people are still going to die of the virus as well. Mm-hmm. If we don't wear a mask, that number goes from 175 to about 350. Hmm. So, effectively, you're saving about half the lives from here on out, even if we just start wearing masks today. 
And uh, I'm in a county with a mass ordinance, so um, I'm safer. But, Brooke, you're in a county that does not have any such ordinances or discipline. I, the city of Orlando has one, correct? But I do not believe Orange County has one. As of June 18, 2020, Mayor Deming signed an executive order requiring the use of face coverings for all residents or visitors in Orange County. So, yes, Orange County and Central Florida has a mask ordinance in addition to Orlando City's mask ordinance. It hadn't become an official policy of the Democratic Party. It's not in the platform. Biden put it in his speech. I'm not sure if it was vetted by the DNC or not, but, but who cares? I mean, he's the nominee, right? He can say what he wants uh, with, with or without the vetting of the DNC. But the point is, by Biden doing this, it has become not 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 that the, the, the right wingers were ever going to mask up, so to speak, right? But um, I, I have a fear now that their anger and resistance and these businesses that say, I'm not wearing a mask, and these people who very publicly make displays on the right of not wearing masks, that's just going to intensify since Biden made his comments, which uh, were, uh, you know, about what would happen when he takes office in January. We have to get from now to January. And as I said, there are estimates that if people don't wear masks, we'll have 350,000 dead in this country by the end of the year. If they do wear masks, it will be somewhere like 240. Uh, let's say that, that some wear masks, some don't. Maybe you get to be like 270. In, in any event, we're going to have a half a million dead Americans since the beginning of this pandemic. Uh, if, if Biden were to win before he takes office, so um, that's that's the reality we're dealing with, right? I mean, uh, Donald Trump is the president, and there is a clear um, there is a clear. Uh, I was I'm looking for the right word, escaping, but there's a clear sentiment on the right that. Uh, Mask wearing is somehow akin to uh, totalitarianism or leftist totalitarianism. So, uh, unfortunately, I don't know that we will, with our numbers having come down in Florida, with the factors you cited, with the humidity as a factor, that we will actually cross the threshold where things are safe again. We could get there if we're disciplined and everyone is wearing masks. But there's too much politicization around this issue. And I don't know how that starts, right? I don't know, Brooke, how at the beginning of this, wearing a mask became political. I, I Maybe I, I missed it. Maybe there was a right-wing talk show host. Maybe it was Rush Limbaugh or someone like that uh, or someone on Fox News that made this an issue. But I still am at a loss to understand how it became the issue it became. Well, you know, I think that we have um... – I think that we have a system of austerity in, in, in public health, first of all, and that austerity in public health is a political matter. So you kind of got that, and then you kind of have how, it, it, as another kind of quasi-political, more of a social matter, you have this warehousing of, of seniors, and especially vulnerable seniors, in uh, assisted living and senior uh, lowest paid workers who don't have access to health care, who don't have access to, you know, any kind of uh, health services. So you have a really sick system that is that is reinforced in how we treat our seniors. Uh, 
I think that the pandemic, in other words, is exposing some structural and systemic problems that have become political because it's the nature of our neoliberal establishment to push all of these uh, collective matters onto the individual. So matters of public health become matters of individual health and fitness and you know whether or not seniors get get adequate care that gets pushed on to either the um, families or the facilities and and none of that is functional uh, and the fact that it's the, that it's not functional you've got very powerful people with a lot of money who stand behind this this austerity and and the these systemic problems and that's it's not just reinforcing the political nature of it it kind of is the political nature of it is you got one group of people who have a, a vested interest in keeping things the way they are and you know they feel like they're not going to get sick or or you know if they do whatever you know they'll they'll get help and then the rest of us just kind of deal with it some of us die you know so sorry <laughs> you know whatever but for them life is going to go on and they have the power to make that decision yeah um and i and i think ultimately we're we're in this mode now where um you've got a situation where uh, uh, there's a a general sense that there's no um there is no need, as you said, health is, is an individual fitness, individual uh, matter, which you know, I, I buy into some of that, right? I, I'm not going to dismiss the neoliberal view of, of that or the, or the or actually more the conservative view of that. Um, however, they've completely discounted science and reason, which is where I think there's a departure between the neoliberals who seem to be embracing this, this idea that we have to listen to the scientists uh, in terms of... Uh, in terms of this this, this uh, virus and the um, and, and the conservative view, although I will say where the neoliberal view has limitations is that the neoliberal view has put complete faith in what the scientists say um, and has basically uh, left it to scientists to dictate public policy. Right? Mm -hmm. I, I I think you know if you're gonna if you're gonna balance it, balance then sure you know science. Scientists, people like Dr. Fauci, uh, they, sh they should be responsible for 75% to 80% of the thinking. But there still needs to be some kind of practical side of it, which I think um, in the case of the Democrats, they left themselves open by advocating mass shutdown to the charge that they tanked the economy. And that was probably from a political standpoint unwise and also potentially just from a societal standpoint unwise. Mm -hmm. um, and, and given... President Trump, the ability to say, look, these guys, uh, the Democrats in Congress, uh, Cuomo, uh, Gretchen Whitmer, uh, Joe Biden, being the leader of that group now, uh, they, they wanted to tank the economy. You know, they, they uh, 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 have, have uh, tried to destroy the economy in order to, and the cure is worse than the, the symptom, which um, I, will, I think is not the case. However, I do have to point out there are times in society when it is the case. So I'm going to point out, uh, I've been doing a lot of thinking about Hurricane Katrina, the 15th anniversary next week. I think I mentioned that earlier. 
So right after Katrina, we had this poem called Rita, which um, was had us in South Florida, where I am placed under a hurricane warning, uh, the Keys under a hurricane warning. It eventually kind of dipped south, entered the Gulf, and struck Texas. It's three weeks after Katrina. We had been directly hit by Katrina. We were under a hurricane warning for Katrina. We were again under a hurricane warning for Rita. There was such that um, evacuation was disorderly, and I, I, I have to double-check this, but I believe more people died from Hurricane Rita in the evacuation than actually died in the storm. So I think there were 150 dead in Texas. I want to say about 100 of them died in the evacuation before the storm, which was uh, chaotic, everybody panicking because of what had just happened in New Orleans and in Mississippi, and, uh, you know, to a certain extent what had happened in Florida. I and mean, one of the things that happened here in South Florida is we had a, an expressway overpass collapse in Katrina and fall on uh, the uh, 836 Expressway just west of Miami International Airport. So we had some serious stuff, too. Wow. And a lot of people died in the evacuation. So that has always made me think sometimes you have to be more pragmatic about these things. So when the Republicans in this state said we need uh, Ron DeSantis and, and Bill Galvano uh, because we saw what happened in Irma. It, Rick Scott was a, the governor then. He didn't do anything about it because that's Rick Scott. Uh, mm-hmm. But 2019, DeSantis is the governor and he starts pushing it. And all the Democrats and all the neoliberal Democrats, all those progressive Democrats said, no, no, you know, whether it's environmental reasons or we should be uh, investing in mass transit, all stuff I believe in, by the way. But I kind of, I wrote an article on the floor this week saying, I actually agree with DeSantis and Galvano on this, because I saw how disorderly the evacuation was in Irma. I saw how many people I knew from South Florida who were trying to get up to Georgia or trying to get up to Tennessee and could only get as far as Ocala and would have to turn around or got stuck in the storm, right? And you remember that. Oh, it was terrible. Three years ago. Yeah. It was terrible. And so you need roads for these evacuations. And then I remembered Irma. Uh, not, sorry, not Irma. Remember Rita? And how many people had died in the death are from, like, dehydration because you're in a car for uh, 20 hours without a bathroom break. You know, things like that. So um, you can't, uh, I know I've gotten off topic here, but you can't put say, basically, like, the, like many Democrats have said, we need to completely shut down the economy until the, the virus is gone. Um, that also leaves you open to Trump turning around and saying, well, Cuomo and Biden and Whitmer and all these people, Gavin Newsom, they're all trying to tank the economy. Um, that having been said, all of this having been said in a, in a long, roundabout way, the Republicans have no interest in listening for scientists. They have no interest in science. They have no uh, in, uh, intellectual curiosity. They do not have any uh, greater uh, hope, uh, hope to kind of um, to, uh, things that challenge their very convenient worldview. It's very ironic because I think COVID-19, as it turns out, as Trump had handled it right, may have won him the election. You know, may have finished, he may have won the election anyway, but, but may have uh, just finished off Biden or Sanders, whoever the Democratic nominee was going to be. Because remember, at the time COVID started, um, it was so uncertain. What ended up happening is he so badly bungled it and had such a absolute lack of um, outward empathy about it mm-hmm. and absolute lack of consistent messaging about it that um, if he loses the election, it's because of it. So I go back to March 11th, that first speech he gave, which, you know, 
people at times said he was babbling off the tel- uh, off the teleprompter, right? Um, that Wednesday night. But he said the right thing, and we began to dial things down over the next week or two. Then what apparently happened is people got to him and said, we need to reopen the economy by Easter. And everything since then has been some, some degree of prevarication or, 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 or just outright lie. So that's why it's difficult to have any sympathy for the conservatives in this, because they certainly have the opportunity to make this right. You know, and, and, to, and to really put a national crisis, think about it. You, we tend to rally around the flag historically in this country in crisis. And instead of using that opportunity to finish Biden off, it ended up being Biden, it could have been Sanders, it would only would have been one of those two, right? it wasn't mm-hmm. anyone else. Um, it, uh, it, it instead opened the door. And um, I think what we saw at the Democratic Convention just to finish up my entire point about this, was those who went to competence and governance in their in their presentations, like Bernie Sanders, like President Obama, like Senator Sanders, like President Obama, and like Vice President Biden, the nominee himself, short major points. Those who started talking about Russia and all these other things and, and even talked about uh, uh, what Black Lives Matter and Medicare for All, as much as I do support Medicare for All, uh, it, it fell on deaf ears. So this election could still be decided, will, will likely still be decided on this issue, um, where the Democrats might be getting some political gain out of it. Biden, by bringing the mask issue back up, may have prevented the ability of us to come together to all wear masks. I guess that's my concern. I said it in a very roundabout way, but that's my concern. Not that he's wrong. He's absolutely right. But now the people who were already kind of hesitant about mask word, he's going to say, well, Biden is pushing it. He's pushing it as a, a national mandate. I saw the way they reacted, which was basically that this is unconstitutional. This is, this is communism, et cetera. Um, and I don't know the reality, actually. I don't know if Biden can actually sign the executive order when he walks into office mandating everyone wears masks. But I think they're probably, just my rough thinking, is there's probably some constitutional problem with that. Um, oh, but well, it's just politicizing it again. And unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. But I think that that is the whole picture here, you know, with the with the Republican unembrace of science and how that has you know, filtered through and and exacerbated all of everything having to do with the pandemic. Um, Cardick, thank you so much for calling in. I have got to I've got Janine on the line for her segment. And uh, we are moving on on this on this incredibly bizarre night of technical difficulties. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, Cardick. And we'll talk to you again next week. And we are so lucky to have Janine Maloff with the Justice Report this week on the moral revolution of the Reverend William Barber. Welcome, Janine. You know, I saw that William, Reverend William Barber, who is one of the spearheading um, leaders behind what's called the Poor People's Campaign. And he's been holding these Moral Monday um, marches to 
various state legislatures all over the country for the past couple of years, actually. And, you know, it's lovely that DNC finally discovered him. But, you know, the fact was, a couple of years ago, uh, I went on one of these marches to the state uh, capital here in Missouri, Jefferson City, with some local clergy and local activists. And, you know, often during these Moral Monday type meetings where we try to basically corner legislators and say, you know, why are you pursuing this this particular agenda that hurts not just the middle class, but the poor, and they usually run away and then they do a sit-in and then the police arrest them for doing a sit-in. You know, it's the same old stuff. So, you know, one of these things that happened was I was was watching – you know, TV, and this is a little little loose tonight, and I saw on my Cutting the Cord, there's this new channel called The First. Now, I didn't think anything could be worse than Fox, but it is. And The (laughs) First is basically where Bill O'Reilly went, and their leading lineup uh, for their alleged news commentary is uh, former St. Louis and Dana Lash, who's with the Tea Party, and... and, um, she can't string together two coherent thoughts unless she's reading them off a teleprompter. And she's basically the NRA's little cutie pie. And then you have um, Buck Sexton, who I don't know much about. Then you have um, Jesse uh, Kelly, who ran against uh, former Representative Gabrielle Gifford. And, you know, he had this gimmick where, you know, you basically you shoot an AK-47 or some sort of weapon of war with with Jesse, and the target has the face either either of an illegal immigrant, as they called it, or somebody that they didn't like. So, you know, Mr. Kelly's been inciting things for quite a while. And then finally, to top it off, you have this this young um, this young contributor named Mike Slater. Now, Mike Slater is a Yale graduate. He's an alum from Yale with a history degree. And he tries to look like he's giving some level of credibility. And when I saw him on the first, and I saw him attack Reverend Barber, I said, I've had enough. So, you know, basically, I saw this article also from Fox News, uh, Fox News Flash, uh, written by Sam Dorman as well. And it says, DNC speaker claims Bible promotes socialism. So, of course, Mike Slater went off on this and saying, well, Reverend Barber is talking about socialism, that's not our kind of Christianity. So Mike Slater, you know, his program is part of this new channel, simply called The First, and they love bragging about how they are not beholden to corporate corporate sponsors, and that, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not owned by anyone, except they are owned by Viacom. Hmm. Okay, so they can't even keep track of their lives. And they even have this disclaimer, quote, the first is the new network for free speech and big ideas and the new TV home of Bill O'Reilly. The first is designed for Americans who love freedom and bold opinions. Both include Dana Lash, uh, Dana Lash, excuse me, Buck Sexton, Jesse Kelly, Mike Slater, and top contributors, end quote. And, And again, it should be noted that the first host repeatedly claimed they report the news you won't hear on corporate-owned media shows because they're not owned, except they are owned by Viacom. So how are they not corporate? Of course they are. So Mike Slater's also a speaker with the Ambassadors, and the Ambassadors' website lists his bio, and under his bio it says a Mike Slater 
quote, speaks to the conservative heart by focusing on the five values that most inspire a virtuous life, curiosity, gratitude, hope, zest, and love. Or other tacos may use anger, frustration, and hopelessness to talk about current events, later told stories that connect to eternal principles and conservative values, end quote. And that's from the ambassador's website. And so Sam Dorman and Mike Slater both are saying that, you know, basically Democrats, especially leftists, and Reverend Barber, who is a member of the clergy, an actual bishop, actually, they shouldn't, quote, invoke Jesus to justify any sort of socialist gains. And and Mike Slater said this last Saturday, and he, you know, he keeps adding that on. And the question in my mind is, where does socialism fit in? I mean, I watched mm-hmm. Slater's show for the past week on the 1st, and Slater and every one of the other hosts perseverate on this subject of socialism. And, and my question is, if Jesus had nothing to do with socialism, since the theory hadn't been written or named yet, you know, it was mm-hmm. 2000 years further away, you would think that a Yale grad like Slater with a degree in, you know, history would know this. Why do they fixate on socialism? And and they do. So, for instance, um, you know, here's a quote here. Quote, it cheapens Jesus when you believe God sent his only son to the world to increase our taxes. That's ridiculous. End quote. Okay. So, uh, you know, backtrack. Slave and Slater, he's speaking about Reverend Barber's speech at the Democratic Convention. And Slater was responding to this clip showing Reverend Barber, who is an activist pastor with the Poor People's Campaign. He he is the the person who really brought this about. And, you know, the Poor People's Campaign is really a takeoff of Dr. King's dream for a Poor People's March. Reverend Barber just took it further. And so, you know, once again, he quotes, Slater quotes Reverend Barber, quote, Jesus offered free health care to everyone, and he never charged a leper a copay, end quote. And that's, what the, that's from Reverend Barber's uh, speech. And Slater couldn't leave that alone. He said, quote, Jesus is so much more than that. He's not a political leader. He transcends all of this, end quote. And, and that's what Slater said. And, you know, my point is this. Reverend Barber isn't debating that point. At no point in no part of his speech or his career does Reverend Barber diminish the teachings of Jesus or any other religious tradition. But the fact that Slater takes Barber's context, uh, you know, out of context, doesn't bother Slater at all. And Slater's an educated man. He knows better. Um, and then Slater went on to say, quote, Jesus wanted individuals to give to others, not vote for other people to force other people to give, end quote. Well, again, Slater's making this claim on TV, but Reverend Barber never debated that issue. Like, Reverend Barber went further than the meager chance offering. And, you know, Slater's just very frustrated. And I think what Slater's really frustrated with is just the idea that the GOP and the far right and the biggest of the far right can no longer claim that leftists have no moral center because Reverend Barber made liars out of all of them. And so... You know, once again, um, this is just something that has to happen. So I looked at Reverend Barber's speech, okay? Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping I have my full 30 minutes tonight because I really need it. Oh, for sure. Um, okay, so there's, I found a rush transcript. There may be a few words, you know, missing. And, you know, Barber starts, he says, Good evening, my brothers and sisters, okay? Which I really love that a lot of blacks 
ministers and black religious people do that. There is a warmth to that. And he says, quote, I come before you tonight as a preacher, the son of a preacher, a preacher immersed in the movement of five years old. I don't come tonight representing any organization, but I come to talk about faith and morality. And so he says, I'm a preacher, and I'm a, this is the part of the community, I'm a theologically conservative, liberal, evangelical biblicist. I know it may sound strange, but I'm a conservative because I work to conserve mm. a divine tradition that teaches us to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. I've had the privilege of traveling the country with the Reverend Dr. James Forbes and the Reverend Dr. Tracy Blackman and Sister Simone Campbell as we are working together in the revival and calling for a revolution of values. Okay? And, and, end quote. And I, again, this is so much Reverend Barber's thing. I, I, you know, I've met Reverend Dr. Tracy Blackman. All right. She has a church right in the middle of Ferguson. And I'm just going to read from Barber's speech because it, it's so truthful. Mm-hmm. And as we travel the country, we see things. That is why I'm so concerned about those that say so much about what God says so little, while saying so little about what God says so much. And so in my heart, I'm troubled. And I'm worried about the way faith is cynically used by some to serve hate, fear, racism, and greed. That line says it all, so I'm concerned. I'm going to repeat it. Reverend Barber said he was worried about, quote, the way faith is cynically used by some to serve hate, fear, racism, and greed. I just going to say, yes, exactly. So Reverend Barber goes on, and he says, we need to hear, heed the voice of the scriptures. We need to listen to the ancient chorus in which deep calls unto deep. The prophet Isaiah cries out, when I'm interested in seeing you doing, says the Lord, is as a nation is. Pay people what they deserve. Share your food with the hungry. Do this, and then your nation shall be called a repairer of the breach. End quote. And then Barbara asks more. He says, Jesus, a brown-skinned Palestinian Jew, very truthful, calls us to preach good news to the poor, the broken, and the bruised, and all those who are made to feel unaccepted. Our Constitution calls us to commit our government to establish justice, to promote the general welfare, to provide for the common defense, and to ensure domestic tranquility. Now, to be true, we've never lived this vision perfectly. This ought to be the goal at the heart of our democracy. And then Barbara goes on, and when religion is used to camouflage meanness, we know that we have a heart problem in America. There have always been forces that want to harden and stop the heart of a democracy. And so he goes on, he speaks about Dr. King's radical revolution of values. And then he speaks about how there are some deep moral values that we have to revive, okay? And these are political goals, such as fight to reinstate the power of the Voting Rights Act and to break what he calls interposition and the nullification of the current Congress, and especially those that live in the South that are people of color know so well. He also says we have to fight for basically a living wage, $15 an hour, a union, universal health care, public education, immigration rights, and LGBTQ rights. He speaks about how we have to develop tax and trade policies that don't funnel our prosperity to uh, an affluent few. He spoke about how we have to hear the legitimate concerns or discontent of Black Lives Matter, and we have to renew justice in our criminal justice system, that we are embracing moral values when we do that. 
He also said that when, quote, when we love the Jewish child and the Palestinian child, the Muslim and the Christian and the Hindu and the Buddhist and those who have no faith, but they love this nation, we are reviving the heart of our democracy. You know, end quote. He also spoke about fighting for peace and resisting military militarism, especially having military-style weapons on the street and to break the stranglehold of the NRA. Um, and he goes on and on and on. And so he basically speaks about the power not only of love but of mercy and how, quote, quote, we must shock this nation with the power of love. We must shock this nation with the power of mercy. We must shock this nation and fight for justice for all. We can't give up on the heart of our democracy, not now and not ever. And then, end quote, and then he asks about, is there a heart in this house? Is there a heart in America? Is there a heart for the poor and a heart for the vulnerable? He says, we have to fight together. Now, compare that speech to the actions of the Trump administration and Mike Slater, so are yours, from 2018. This is a really interesting comparison. I'm not really so concerned about Reverend Barber speaking at the DNC. That was long overdue, but Reverend Barber has been a guiding light for some of us for a long time. So NBC wrote this piece back in 2018, and this was on the Trump migrant family separation policy, which is just call it what it is, it's kidnapping. We've spoken about it on the show many times. And apparently what happened was Stephen Miller, as we know, was the leading architect, and they had this meeting, and Christian Nielsen was there, Jeff Sessions, all these people, and they were beginning the zero-tolerance policy, but Border Patrol had begun the kidnapping. And Miller was apparently furious about any delays. And, you know, basically, I think the only reason Nielsen, Christian Nielsen, was tentative was because she wanted to make sure that everything was perfectly legal. She was basically covering her back legally and professionally. She didn't care about those children. So we have this policy where they not only plotted to kidnap migrant children of color, but also abuse them. And, you know, these, these are the alleged good Christians. So then we also have to go back to Reverend Barber. And when you look at his Poor People's Campaign, you know, it was written up in The Guardian, actually. I find it very ironic that a British newspaper covered more of this than our newspapers. And there, there was this uh, conference that, um, and it was a, uh, there was a Poor People's Campaign conference, and this was, this article was in The Guardian um, this August, and there was a report that was released called Unleashing the Power of Poor and Low-Income Americans Changing the Political Landscape. And, you know, Reverend Barber is all about not only giving a voice to low-income and poor voters, but making sure that those in power are shamed by their basically wholesale neglect of the poor. We always hear about the middle class, the middle class. So there's no concern about the poor. And I find that particularly disgusting. So we also know from this study that there are some 34 million poor and low-income people that didn't get to vote or didn't vote in 2016 for a variety of reasons. And we know that if these people could come and vote, Trump wouldn't have been in office. There were some quotes from this news conference that Reverend Barber gave after he released this report. Um, and this is, you know, Reverend Barber, campaign co-chair and president of Repairers of the Breach. Quote, we are challenging both parties to say you cannot ignore poor and low-wealth people anymore. 
So more than just challenging them, politicians, that is, poor and low-wealth people in this movement have decided we must do more. We must mobilize, organize, register, and educate. We must vote in November. We must be engaged after November. Poor and low-wealth people are saying we are not going to be ignored anymore. One of Reverend Barber's colleagues and partners is Reverend Dr. Liz O'Harris. She's the campaign co-chair and director of the Cairo Center for Religions, Rights, and Social Justice. And she said, quote, we are building the political power and moral vision to reconstruct America. And this groundbreaking new report we're releasing today proves empirically what we've always known. Poor and low-income people can become a transformative new electorate. All across the country, poor and low-income people are demanding accountable representation and trying to save the very soul of this democracy. Okay. Shally Gupta Barnes, policy director for the Poor People's Campaign, was quoted. Um, the report focuses only on the participation of the 34 million poor and low-income people who didn't vote. But we know if that segment started moving around issues that have now become everybody's issues, issues of health care, issues of economic well-being and security and housing, that there is also the potential of that segment to move and pull other voters in that direction. This report is actually a conservative estimate of the potential impact of these voters in November and beyond. And then Robert Paul Hartley is an assistant professor at Columbia School of Social Work and also the author of the study was quoted, the study is not suggesting that the outcomes would change or that all the states would change, but there's enough potential out there that if there's a small margin in a certain state, this low-income population could really be pivotal if candidates are speaking to them. And this is why we see so much voter suppression. We had Greg Pavlis on the show speaking to that. You know, the Republican Party knows this. They know it very well. This is why they have to keep them from voting. Um, Reverend Barber goes further. He shames especially white evangelicals. Mm -hmm. He speaks about prophetic Christianity. And, you know, again, I feel the same way about ultra-Orthodox Jews, my own people, all right, where liberal Jews like myself say, no, it isn't enough just to have a religion of words. It has to be also about your deeds. And this is something where uh, this was in the nation, and he was talking about Christianity Today, which is a publication, and how uh, they finally, uh, one of the writers came around. And, you know, basically what he had to say was that, you know, what Trumpism has done is it has really unveiled or shown white evangelicals' willingness to accommodate what he calls a dangerous Christian nationalism, all right? And there were, they quoted the prophet Isaiah, said, woe to those who legislate evil and rob the poor of their rights. You know, he goes on to speak how prophetic Christianity in, demands that faith is always political and that whoever's in power, they have to be a voice for the poor, the immigrant, and the vulnerable, and that that was. That's the, that's the witnessing act that Jesus did when he took on flesh 2,000 years ago, according to Reverend Barber. And then all this works together. And it's not to say that Reverend Barber is preaching for theocracy. He isn't. He's preaching for fair play, all right? Mm -hmm. uh, as a, a religious minority, a very small minority at that, I am perfectly comfortable. I, I adore Reverend Barber, okay? There is no problem here. And the thing is, you have to realize, Reverend Barber and his colleagues weren't just speaking, and this was an article in the Nation that Reverend Barber wrote with um, Jonathan Wilson's Heart Grows. And so uh, 
Reverend Barber and his colleagues, they weren't just speaking about the evils of racism, but their byproducts, including economic injustice. And that's the subject where the corporate-led DNC, as well as the GOP, has been negligent. Um, and the Guardian tapped into this, all right, with this, you know, the low-income people, we won't be ignored anymore. And you really just can't blame them because this has gotten to a point where I, I can, if I had a dime for every time I heard a politician say, we're worried about the middle class, I would be able to pay my mortgage off. But you, when have you ever heard either party say, we have to take care of the poor? They, they just don't. And there's something, you know, about this. And Reverend Barber was quoted in this piece. He said, quote, poor people were in a depression before COVID. They're saying we won't be ignored anymore. So the question is, will poor and low-wealth Americans have a major place on the ballot in conventions? So we are challenging both parties to say you cannot ignore poor and low-wealth families anymore. Challenging the political landscape is critical. The interlocking injustices that must be addressed simultaneously that systemic racism and systemic poverty, and they're not marginal issues. And he said it right there. Uh, this is something where you just have to realize this wasn't done by accident. You know, so basically while you have these mouthpieces like Mike Slater that have privileged upbringing and, you know, a Yale alumnus basically routinely slandering and defaming people like William Barber and, and not offering a single stitch a proof, by the way. Then you and, and you have Donald Trump, who wants and his and his followers who want to protect monuments that are erected to honor evil. I mean, D.C.'s turned into basically a a, a graveyard. Everything is a monument. It's a, it's a tombstone. Donald Trump wants to protect those dead monuments that are at their court, at their court, false idols, and they're false idols promising. Whites, especially white Christians, are returned to extreme privilege. Now, you add to this scenario the vapid raving of cable TV's Mike Slater, again, a Yale alumnus, posing as the common man, the totally deaf nature of our laughable two party political system. And we have the perfect storm for what both Dr. King and Reverend Barber called for, namely a revolution of values. Reverend Barber has a history of fighting for the disenfranchised, both politically and economically. I've been aware of him for about three years now. All the alleged Christians of the GOP hide behind an empty faith that demands no good works. All you have to do is say you believe. We see the poor and disenfranchised on the political left fighting for all of us, every single one of us, while overpaid mouthpieces like Mike Slater routinely slander and defame the left while providing zero documentation to defend their allegations. Like St. Louis treasured Reverend Daryl Gray, who I spoke, who I interviewed a few weeks ago. Reverend Barber is fighting for justice, racial, political, and economic. Yes, while the political left has been slandered by the fascists of the GOP, while the political left has been accused of being without morality, even as they go out, including here in St. Louis, and find people that are homeless and give them coats and, and food and try and find a place for them to stay. And they put their own put their own lives in jeopardy doing this, okay? But then you have the fascists of the GOP that basically do nothing but slander and defame. Then we have true Christian leaders like Reverend Barber and here in St. Louis, Reverend Daryl Gray, who I will quote right now. 
And Reverend Greg was quoted, this was from an article in the Christian Science Monitor, an interview they did with him in 2018. And, and the title was in St. Louis, the Reverend Daryl Gray is praying with my feet. And this speaks to an old story. Uh, I believe it was when Rabbi Heschel was marching with Dr. King in Selma, and they asked him at the end of the march, how do you feel, Rabbi? Because he was really up there in years, okay? Dr. King was, what, early 40s? Rabbi Heschel was probably nearing 80. He was tired, okay? And he just goes, hey, I'm praying with my feet, okay? But I'm, I'm there. I'm going to keep going. So Reverend Gray takes this, and he says, you know, quote, I'm praying with my feet. You know why? Biblical scripture. Because faith without works is dead. I love that line. This is Reverend Gray. Because faith without works is dead. If I'm only going to be concerned with those in the sanctuary and not concerned about those who stand in or lie quiet in the shadows of the steeple, then I may as well do something else. Christ said, Go ye therefore into all the world. This was his mission. If I say that I want to be like Christ in my life, then I've got to go ye therefore. I can't hide behind the stained glass windows and the wooden pews. I've got to move beyond that and not be afraid. And so that's where I'm at. It's why I do what I do, and I'm unapologetic, end quote. And that was our friend, the Reverend Daryl Gray. And this is something that, once again, not surprised. And to borrow a line from him, I agree. This is about faith without works is dead. You can say all the pretty words you like, but it's about the choices you make in this life and the actions you do. And we are not, some of us are not going to allow the fascists of the far right to call those of us on the left immoral because we're not. If there's a heart, if there's morality, yes, it is on the far left. It may be a little bumped up and a little awkward looking, but the heart is there. And like Reverend Daryl Gray, who I'm privileged to call friends, I agree with them, and I'm unapologetic about it. And that's my report. Wow. I, hold on, I couldn't agree with you more on just everything you said. I mean, from, from the piece about, you know, there's so much talk about the middle class and no one ever talks about the poor and, you know, having a solid moral foundation, what the left has been about forever has been doing the right thing and, uh, and keeping our promises. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it's telling to me when the way that the right wants to, uh, come at the left, they do it through this performative you know, uh, nonsense. So uh, Donald Trump right. said that the uh, that the Democrats removed uh, references to God and the um, uh, Pledge of Allegiance. Well, Which first of all, that was a lie. And <laughs> and so, you, you, you know, you can see how they have absolutely nothing. You know, first of all, it's a lie. But secondly, what he goes after is is something that's performative that doesn't actually mean anything. Oh, yeah. You know, it oh, doesn't yeah. change and, and anyone's life. They they don't care. All right. And and what they do is they call us immoral because we don't follow all the little world rules because we won't basically allow ourselves to be robbed anymore because we're not white enough or because we're not Christian or because we're female or LGBTQ. We won't accept 
that abuse any longer. And that's what this is about. This is about the right dishing out abuse and them expecting the love with the left to accept it. And we won't. And so they call us immoral to try to discredit our very tangible concerns and our very real point. You know, that's what it is. You just, they, they have nothing to stand on. They know it. So they have to cause chaos and they have to try and discredit us. And we're not going to let them get away with it anymore. Hell no, we are not, Janine. We are not. Uh, that was Janine Moloff with the Justice Report. Stay tuned for Rick Spizak in conversation. Just us on the Democratic National Convention. Stay tuned. Hello there, my dear. How are you? I am super. It's so good to actually hear your voice. <laughs> <laughs> likewise, my dear, likewise. Okay, so we're rolling. And uh, uh, we were going to talk about the, uh, we had a whole list, the convention and the post office. So what do you want to start out with? Well, let's let's talk first about the big surprise that uh, Steve Bannon and his buddies that's right. We're dipping deep, darling. That's right. Uh, these boys, these boys, not happy with you know uh, siphoning off the money that they've had. Um, they also needed to steal a little bit more from the rubes, you know. Mm-hmm. And I know I, for one, am surprised that these campaign guys were like still taking another hit at the rubes. Isn't it really heartwarming that they just keep going back to that same barrel? You, they 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 do what they know. <laughs> <laughs> it works. <laughs> you know, I heard a campaigner talking on um, uh, the uh, XM radio the other day on the on the Progressive Channel, saying that uh, you know it's a funny thing with these Trumpers that almost nobody goes into the campaign business to make a lot of money. But look at how many of these fellows just came away with hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars. I mean, it's kind of heartwarming, you know, to know that these boys have to take one more hit at the trough before they fade into that long gray cell down down the corridor. (laughs) Yep, yep. Well, and, you Uh, know, it was such a grift, such a, you you know, it – they knew how to push the buttons, and all they had to do was make the ask for money, and they knew money was going to come in. Yep. You know, those pesky browners out there, <laughs> you know, we've got to protect America. And, you know, we're not taking any money at all because we're just so good and pure. You know, and, and I thought it was funny when some of the uh, the gendarmes on the matter said that, uh, well, you know, if they just hadn't said they weren't taking any money, then ripping them off was really okay, you know, but they just had to keep saying they weren't taking any money. 
Well, gall darn, you know, it seems that none of that money went into the wall after all. I'm sure you're as shocked as I am. I'm so shocked. I I might not ever get over it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, before we get into the convention, which is certainly not only has been worthwhile studying and observing, but also will be uh, very interesting the week ahead, I did want to mention one other little insignificant matter, that matter of the Intelligence Committee report, which, you know, surprisingly enough, didn't see a lot of corporate air, you know? You know, you're right. It did not catch much uh, traction in the media at all. Because, you know, it's only subverting the election. And uh, (laughs) was, was that was that the Russian hoax that really wasn't a hoax after all? Is is that what this was about? Oh, my God, it sure the hell was. I took a look, uh, kind of a deep wade into Chapter 5 or Volume Mm 5, and the number of direct links with not just, like, some Russian oligarch rich guy, but literally guys tied directly to the, was it the GRU or the... uh, the new uh, version of the KGB. I mean, these guys were literally spy operatives working directly hand-in-glove with the Trumpers. And not just like any old Trumper, but the leading guys building the policy, establishing the personnel who were going to staff up the Trump administration. Now, wait a minute. It seems to me that if you got spies, quote, helping you staff up, what kind of people are they helping you staff up? What What was your reaction when you took a look at this thing? Well, it's heavily politicized. So I've I've been researching what went on there for quite some time and from some different angles. And I think that some of what we saw in the Senate Intelligence Report, which is from the Senate Intelligence Committee, is it's it's people digging in to their uh, to to the positions that they that they put forward and solidifying them for the record. Uh, There's there's a lot in there that is where there was questionable stuff that just got repeated. And my my political sense of this is that what's getting ready to happen is Durham is wrapping up his uh, uh, investigation. So he just did he just did eight hours with um, uh, not Mueller, the other guy. Uh, he's on CNN now. He was like a. Oh, I have to edit this out. What the heck is his name? Um, the big director, Brennan. That's it, Brennan. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Brennan did eight hours sitting down with Durham, and they were they were very careful to uh, talk about uh, to to say it was a respectful conversation, and that he isn't under c- criminal investigation, and that he was cooperative. You know, that came from the Durham people, and then from the Brennan people, it was you know this wasn't part of a criminal investigation. I was very happy to sit down and provide what I knew. You know, there was all this nicey nicey on on either side but um you, you know i i feel like until somebody sits down with a, a, and or gets a 
um, statement from Julian Assange on the emails. I don't think that we're that that we uh, are going to know really what happened. And I find it really interesting too that no one up until this point. I mean, it's been since 2016. No one has deposed him or interviewed him uh, either under oath or or in terms of just a a, a casual uh, fact finding kind of way. So, you, you know, it, it left a lot of to me what the Senate Intelligence Report did was it 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 codified what it is that the that the parties in the Senate Intelligence Committee, it just kind of codified what they had and and put it down. Um, I here's my fear. I feel like Durham is in the next nine weeks. Durham's going to come out and drop some stuff. Likely, I think it's likely. You know, it could happen that they will drop some of this stuff during um, during the RNC. Now, something that happened during that didn't happen in the Democratic convention could happen in the Republican convention. So in the Democratic convention, there was no mention of impeachment. I think that it, and this is going to be really interesting to watch. What are the how are the Republicans going to, you know, talk about that? Are they going to talk about it? Are they going to crow about it? Are you know, is are they going to make a thing about it? And do they make a thing about it? Uh, in conjunction with uh, uh, anything coming out of the Durham probe, so that could be that could be problematic. Um, the uh, uh, when Comey came out two weeks before the election in 2016 and said that Hillary Clinton was uh, still being investigated for emails or whatever it was that they were investigating her for. I think that that, I think that that was a significant moment in the race. I think that, you know, of course there were problems with the campaign. They should have campaigned in Michigan and Pennsylvania and so on and so forth. But Comey coming out and doing that, uh, what was it, 10 days before the election, I, I feel like that was pretty devastating. Now, what I am uh, preparing for is for Durham to do something similar. And I don't think he's going to wait till 10 days out. I think he's going to, you know, uh, drop what he has uh, at least by the time, like, vote-by-mail ballots drop. And, and, and vote-by-mail drop ballots are going to drop... Uh, I know they're in Florida 45 days before an election is, was it 45 or is it 15? Um, but they'll, but they're probably going to drop something about that time and then they're going to use, and then the reason why the Senate intelligence report is important is they're going to use that. That's the document that they're going to use to push back on Durham, you know, so they had to get that out there and they had to set that up. And then that's that's going to be used. It's fascinating to watch because, well, um, the thing that struck me, and, and and to me, is is beyond the details. If you look big picture for a second, this is the document that even the Republican senators couldn't gag down. Mm-hmm. This is what they were prepared to admit. So you can imagine. 
after a carefully drawn document that had to pass the, the timid souls in the Republican Party who, who dare not speak ill of the tea man, mm-hmm. if this is what got through from that process, mm-hmm. wow. You know, I, I saw all that. We refused to speculate. We refused to speculate. Yeah, well, you don't have to be a freaking genius to realize that if Manafort was doing the same kind of dirty tricks across Europe, in for the paymasters of Moscow, what the hell surprised you that he was prepared to take a freebie job with the with the Trump administration because he was already getting paid by the KGB and the GRU? Why wouldn't he take a freebie job to extend that same franchise, that same let's undermine, let's destroy democracy? It was just. It was just the next phase of his work. No surprise at all. And again, like I said, for, for this is the document that came through there. I listened to, I think it was Face the Nation. They said, well, we had a Democrat on, but we tried to get a Republican from the Intelligence Committee, and they wouldn't come. Gee, they don't want to be on the record. Well, I hope I hope those, uh, <laughs> those gentlemen in the, the Republican convention aren't so timid about the... the uh, impeachment issue. I just, once again, one more disappointment in the long, long chain of disappointments. Uh, but this might be a good time to turn to our our friendly uh, Democratic convention. Friendly in the sense that it was very friendly to the Republicans out there. <laughs> once again, once again, they're going to that same well. If we're nice to the Republicans, then maybe They'll spit on their mother's grave? I don't think so. What's your first takeaway of that convention? Well, uh, definitely that uh, that uh, no progressives were invited to the Honeycomb hideout. You know, it it it, it was really you know they we were we were discouraged from from being there. They only gave AOC like thirty uh, ninety seconds to talk, and then made a made a big fuss about even that. None of the uh, you know, if I had been running things, I would have put Cory Bush up there. I would have brought uh, you know rising stars in the party like Anna Eskamani. Would have brought her out. Uh, you, you know, I think that the I think that. There was a clear message that they were courting Republicans and not courting uh, uh, Democrats or what we've in the past called the um, the base of the Democratic Party. Yeah, Democrats for the heartbeat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I, if I recall, do you have that clip handy of um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? The wounds of racial injustice, colonization, misogyny, and homophobia. And to propose and build reimagined systems of immigration and foreign policy that turn away from the violence and xenophobia of our past. A movement that realizes the unsustainable brutality of an economy that rewards explosive inequalities of wealth for the few at the expense of long-term stability for the many, and who organized a historic grassroots campaign to reclaim our democracy. In a time when millions of people in the United States are looking for deep systemic solutions to our crises of mass evictions, unemployment, and lack of health care, 
en el espíritu del pueblo and out of a love for all people, I hereby second the nomination of Senator Bernard Sanders of Vermont for President of the United States of America. It was beautiful. It was eloquent. It was understated. And, and one of the things I liked best was she was basically speaking to the future. She was saying, you know, I don't even care if you guys don't endorse it because that's what we're going to get. That's what we're working for. And I thought it was just brilliant. It was brilliant. And she delivered this in the midst of a, an austerity convention uh, with the massive invites to Republicans. Kamala Harris had just gotten the big thumbs up from the Wall Street Journal. Politocrats are totally excited about this platform. There's nothing on there for working Americans, lots on there for the wealthy. You know, and I, I feel like there was so little in the convention for working Americans that I kind of hope there weren't too many people like me who were watching because it's going to tampen enthusiasm to have too much uh, sense about where the uh, elites and the party, the party elites, are taking us. One other point I want to make about this convention past is, you know, if I thought being apoplectic would help, I would. But I cannot believe that in August of 2020, there was no commitment to guaranteeing health care accessibility mm -hmm. to Americans without the threat of bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I understand why the corporate Dems are scared to death that's going to hurt those money cows they've been milking for so goddamn long. But if they could just look up from their wallet for a second and see what Americans are going through, what heartless SOBs they are. But I liked Ocasio's, Cortez's statement. I liked her basically saying, you know what? You say what you want. Don't say what you don't want. That's where we're going. Get on the frickin' bus. That's right. And there was a steeliness to what she said. There was such an inherent depth of truth to it. I got chills. I got chills. Give her only 90 seconds. She stole your goddamn show, if you ask me. And that's the truth, Rick. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, I look forward to hearing you every week on PNN. And uh, it's just been a special treat to have you for a whole segment to ourselves. Brooke, keep up the good work. You Bye -bye. too. Thank you. You guys, thank you so much for tuning in this week. That's it for us. We'll see you again next week, probably Sunday or Monday. Please subscribe so that you catch the show as Blog Talk Radio's live feed is just hinky as hell lately. We love you so much, and we'll see you next week.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 